This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad if you'd open those with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10 is where we are going to be today. Uh, If you brought your own Bible, then that's great. If you didn't, then there should be a hardback black one like this, not too far away in a seat back nearby. And if you're looking for Acts chapter 10, it starts on page 864, 864. I'd like to ask you a, a couple of questions as we start today's sermon. And the questions I'd like to start off with are, when was it that Christianity began? What's the origin of Christianity? Maybe to put it in a slightly different way, uh, specifically, do the characters and stories of the Old Testament, do those characters and stories belong to New Testament Christians as well as the Old Testament people of God? Does your concept of Christianity begin with the apostles and what we normally refer to as the early church? Do you know enough about those times in order to have your concept of Christianity to begin there? Or maybe you've studied a bit of church history and your concept of Christianity uh, kind of begins with the establishment of uh, Christianity as a, as a, uh, a primary religion in Rome at the establishment of the uh, Christianity in the, Roman, in the context of the Roman Empire. Maybe you've done some really interesting uh, church history study and you know about some of the strange uh, expressions of Christianity throughout the medieval period. Does that, is that included in your concept of what Christianity is? Or maybe you really love the Protestant Reformation like I do. And maybe you put a lot of emphasis on that. And that for you is the, is the sort of a quintessential Christian moment. Maybe for many of us in the room, our concept of Christianity begins with our own personal experiences as a child or a teenager. And we don't know much about any other expressions of Christianity before that. I wonder if if you realize that all of the apostles and all of the earliest Christians, they thought of themselves as having the same origins as the people of God throughout the Old Testament. Do you understand that? As we read through the New Testament, that they always understood themselves as, as being part of the same story? The book of Acts provides us with the rationale and the description of how the people of God, those people in the world who worship and serve the God of the Bible, transitioned from being one ethnic group in the world to encompass all ethnicities and all geographies. During our time studying through the book of Acts, we've seen the word and the kingdom of Christ advance quickly and powerfully, at least in the inaugural fulfillment of all the blessings of God that he had promised throughout the Old Testament. So first we saw the word of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ publicly established in Jerusalem. Peter preached that Jesus was and is the Messiah of old and that everyone should repent of their sin, turn from their sin and believe or trust in him. And at least a few thousand on the very first preaching of the gospel did just that. We can read about that in Acts chapter two. That first section, though, was Acts chapter one through through Acts chapter six, verse seven, this first expansion of Christ's kingdom in Jerusalem. Then there was another expansion, and that was the advance of the word of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ into Judea and Samaria. This is from Acts chapter 6, verse 8, on into Acts chapter 9, verse 31. And 
in Christ by his spirit and by the proclamation of the gospel extended or advanced his kingdom or his church in the world. You might remember that all of the book of Acts is a sort of uh, outworking of the commission that Christ gave his disciples there at the very beginning in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus commissioned his followers, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, speaking especially to his disciples. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. There's the commission in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So as readers of the book of Acts, we expect the next advance, now as we're reading through, of the word of the gospel and of Christ's kingdom to be the addition of those who are counted among the end of the earth. Right? We've seen the expansion of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ in Jerusalem. We've seen it in Judea and Samaria. And so we're anticipating as readers of the book of Acts, the next thing we're looking to see is this extension of the kingdom of of Christ to the ends of the earth. Well, we, in our last time together, we started in this really third section of Luke's storyline of the book of Acts in Acts chapter nine, verse 32. And he refocuses the reader back on the apostle Peter. And also he refocuses the reader on what it looks like for the kingdom of Christ to be breaking into the world as it is now. Peter is refocused on, zoomed back in on by Luke, And it's in particular stuff that Peter is doing uh, by way of miracles. He heals a man who was a paralytic and he brings a lady back to life who had been dead. So Luke is reminding us that this is a manifestation of what Christ is doing in the world uh, initially now and will do in full as the gospel continues to advance and as the storyline of the plan of redemption unfolds. So the promise of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of old. Everything that God had been saying about this Messiah to come is true. And Jesus is that guy. And he's come to usher in God's perfect kingdom on earth, which is here now and will be manifest or more fully displayed when Christ comes again. God's kingdom does now and will only admit perfectly moral, holy and upright people. So Jesus has suffered and died in the place of sinners. And he offers forgiveness in his name to all who repent and believe. This is the way the gospel is preached throughout the book of Acts in the early church. Furthermore, God's kingdom will be perfect joy and peace. Therefore, every result of the curse has been and is being and will be reversed. So sickness is healed. Uh, You know, exhibit uh, exhibit A here is is Peter uh, healing this, this paralytic man. Sorrow is comforted and dispelled. And even death must give way to life. Tabitha, Peter brings her back to life. This is the meaning of the signs or the miracles of the uh, of the apostles and what happened during the early church period and during Jesus' earthly ministry. And the momentary healings signal the greater healing that is to come. Uh, you can revisit this on the sermon I preached last time on uh, Acts chapter nine, verse thirty-two, on through the end of, of Acts chapter nine. But the emphasis of our passage today is not on the profound depths of God's promises. What all has God promised in the gospel and how deep does it go? But rather on the extent to which the gospel advances. How far does it reach? That's the emphasis of our passage today. Not only is Jesus ushering in God's perfect kingdom on earth, he's also bringing those which the Mosaic covenant called unclean into God's pure and holy kingdom. 
Therefore, we are, we are to learn today that inclusion in God's kingdom, inclusion in the blessing of the new covenant, inclusions in the eternal and profound promises of the gospel do not depend on ethnic descent or family lineage. But in fact, everything hangs on God's calling, on the hearing of the word of the gospel, and the powerful and effectual work of God's Holy Spirit. That's what our passage is about today. So let's read it together. Would you mind standing with me as we read Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 48 together? At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a soldier and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went with them, went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. 
But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before, before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was say, still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water, water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Thank God for your word. You can all be seated. Uh, the main point of the passage, what I believe is the main point of this passage I'm aiming to draw out today during our time together is that the promises of the gospel are available to all those God calls to himself who hears the word of the gospel and who are renewed by the effectual work of the Holy Spirit. The promises of the gospel and the benefits of those promises are available to everyone God calls to himself who hears the word of the gospel and who is renewed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are six points today. I think I said seven last week and ended up with six only. Uh, sometimes I'm accurate on my uh, anticipation. I just kind of keep you guessing sometimes. So we'll, we'll go along and however many are up on the board is hopefully how many I'll present to you this morning. But let's dive straight into my first point today. And that is the emphatic and dramatic gospel expansion. The gospel expansion. This is what our passage is all about as I've tried to already uh, allude. Our passage today is a major event in the storyline of the Bible. It is the major event uh, post the life and ministry, earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It is the massive event. There is the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, 
But this is the culmination of God's spirit being delivered to all people everywhere. This is where we're seeing it happen right here in Acts chapter 10. This passage that we're looking at here today contains the major, one of the major events of the storyline of the Bible. And we can know that because in Luke's uh, storyline of Acts, he records this event twice. There are two full explanations of what happened and, and how it all went down. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 28, which we've just read. That's the first where Luke tells the reader what happened. And the second one, he tells the reader how Peter explained what happened in Acts chapter 11, which we'll get to very soon. But not only that, there's also the allusion to, they're referring back to this event at the pivotal point in Acts chapter 15, when the Jewish Christians have to decide, what are we going to do with these non-Jews who all believe the gospel like we do, and even God has given his spirit to them. What do we do with them? Are they to become Jews like us? Are they to follow the Mosaic covenant? Or what's the deal here? Well, this, this time, this passage we're looking at here today in Acts chapter 10, that event is something that's referred back to in Acts chapter 15 to make a decision on what we do with those Gentile converts. So this is a huge, a critical passage in the, over, in the out, outworking of the storyline of the gospel, and especially what is new about the new covenant. It's an incredibly important passage. Uh, our passage is the definitive and pivotal expansion of God's covenant, which includes everyone who repents and believe, everyone who turns from sin and believes in or trusts in or clings to the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about it like this. Before Acts chapter 10, there are Jews, descendants of Abraham, people of God, and non-Jews, Gentiles, pagans, and idolaters. With a sporadic, occasional uh, bringing in of, of non-Jews who can be God-fearers, but they're not quite fully welcomed into the covenant people of God. So you have, you have some uh, sporadic anomalies, but on the whole, the general picture is you have Jews, people of God, non-Jews, pagans, idolaters, under God's curse. After Acts chapter 10, you have people of God essentially redefined by God himself. No longer are the people of God those who are merely of ethnic descent, uh, of uh, Abraham's descent, but they are all those who repent and believe. Those who turn from sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 10 is that moment in the New Testament where that becomes crystal clear. What I'm not saying is, is that that's not clear anywhere else in the Bible. I'm saying it's becoming crystal clear here in Acts chapter 10. So there is much else that we could talk about how important this passage is. But even one last thing about how important it is, even the structure of the, the, of the passage is something that indicates the importance of it. It's such a formal structure that Luke gives us here in Acts chapter 10 of the unfolding of this event. It's a really important event. And so he records it in a systematic way. So the way that we're going to go through it today will be two visions, verses 1 to 16, Two divinely arranged welcomes, verses 17 to 29. Two explanations of divine revelation, verses 30 to 43. And then finally, two confirmations of conversion, verses 44 to 48. If you didn't get all those, don't worry. I just gave you my next several points. So that leads us to go through these pair of points. Uh, this, the first point that I mentioned, though, uh, which is point number two of the sermon today, is two visions. So let's start in verse 1 and work our way through 16, looking at these two visions that are recorded here in Acts chapter 10. These two visions are had or experienced by two different individuals, one being Cornelius and the other being Peter. Uh, Cornelius and Peter couldn't be two different guys, uh, two, couldn't be two more different guys. Cornelius is, we're told in verse one, a centurion, 
which means he was the captain over about 100 soldiers. Uh, He was, we're told in verse 2, a devout man who feared God, which likely means that he was a Gentile aiming to live as much as possible as a uh, a Gentile under the the covenantal laws of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, Much like we might uh, see the Ethiopian official who's, who's coming to Jerusalem to worship the God of, of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. Uh, so he's attempting to live in the context of what God has revealed about himself up to this point. But like the Ethiopian official, Cornelius, being a Gentile, is not welcomed fully into the covenant people of God up to this point. Luke also describes Cornelius' devotion by saying that he gave alms generously, that is, he gave to the poor of his surplus, and he prayed continually to God. So he is, he is a man of, of religious piety. Uh, he, he is not just a, a passive religious participant. He is actively pursuing a God that everything in the world says he cannot have. This is Cornelius. Peter was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's one of Jesus' closest disciples during his earthly ministry. Peter was also a Jewish man, a descendant of Abraham who had lived his entire life according to the Mosaic Covenant. Now, among the disciplines that were most common to any Mosaic Covenantal Jew were the dietary and social laws, which both fall underneath the ceremonial laws, governing the way in which God's people were supposed to serve and worship him in the world. So there were certain parameters. Certain kinds of animals and certain kinds of people, among other things, were unclean or impure. And this includes everyone who is not of Abrahamic descent. Any other ethnos, any other nation, any other people is a Gentile and one who is unclean, defiled, impure, unholy. Even to touch an unclean thing or person would result, at least for a time, according to the Mosaic Covenant, uh, would result in you being unclean or impure yourself. Uh, so this is, this is all sort of the, the luggage that P- Peter is constantly carrying around with him. And now here are these two who each have visions uh, distinct from one another, but but have a significant interaction. So these two visions we find again in the first several verses of our of chapter ten. Uh, first is listed Cornelius's vision. We see in verse three that there was a messenger or angel that God sent to Cornelius, and that uh, this angel or messenger from God told Cornelius that there was uh, one Simon who's called Peter who's lodging with another Simon out by the sea in Joppa. This is verse five and six. The messenger from God told Cornelius to bring Peter to Caesarea, where Cornelius and his people were staying. That's what we find in verse 5. But we don't see much, by the way, or in the way of details here. What's Peter going to say? What's this interaction going to be like? It's not really clear. What does seem to be clear, though, in this interaction that the angel has with Cornelius is, Cornelius, God knows where you are. He knows who you are, and you're under his blessing and not his cursing. That's about all Cornelius knows. God has heard you, he's aware of you, and he's going to bless you. Go find this guy, Peter, and more is to come. Then Peter's vision is the the other end of this uh, exchange. Peter hears in verse 13 and 15, a voice from heaven, and he sees a picture, something like a great sheet, verses 11 and, and 12, containing all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And God revealed to Peter that God has made clean that which was once unclean under the Mosaic covenantal laws. So God is lowering down this sheet with all kinds of of animals 
that are unclean according to the Levitical law, the Mosaic Covenantal law. And God, by way of the messenger, is telling Peter, you can eat this stuff now. And Peter, in typical fashion, he objects to the voice of the Lord. No, God, I'm not going to do that. And God kindly and graciously responds. The voice responds a second time saying, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. So the communication is clear. God is making clean that which was once unclean. And to ensure that the message was definitive, we're told that this happened three times in verse 16 before the vision concluded. Now, again, there's not much in the way of details. What's going to happen? What, is this, what does this all mean? And we're not given a lot of details here, but it is clear that God is making the unclean stuff, at least according to the Mosaic Covenant of law, he's making it clean. This is a transition that's happening. Now, each of these visions alone are interesting, but as the story progresses, these visions become monumental and ground-shifting. And that leads us to point number three, two divinely arranged welcomes. This is now concentrating on verses 17 to 29. These divinely arranged welcomes. First, Peter welcomed the two servants and the devout soldier into his own household or his own place where he was staying. And that's there in verse 7. Who these people were. And verses 17 and 18 tells us that while Peter was still perplexed about what that vision might mean, that there were some men who were sent by Cornelius who stood at the gate of the very house where he was staying. So it's in the midst of all of this that, the, that God the Spirit is working out exactly what is to happen. And they're calling out, asking for Peter while he's thinking about what this whole thing meant. Now, before, the men, uh, before Peter hears the men himself, the Holy Spirit tells Peter that, uh, that it was him, it was God's Spirit who actually sent these men to Peter. That's in verse 20. So Peter is told by the Spirit before he actually meets these guys while they're asking for him at the house, God's Spirit tells him, Peter, I'm sending some guys to you, and you're to go with them. I'm the one who's behind all this. Now, there's a side note that we could get off into, and that is uh, that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is, is put on display here, and there's much we could consider about who the Holy Spirit is. What power does he have? How is he working in all of this? We don't have time to delve fully into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit today, but it is vitally important that we see that God's Spirit is at work throughout this entire encounter. God is the one who has organized it. He's the one who's arranging, putting pieces into place, characters in place all throughout the way. And he's the one that produces the final result. And all of this by God's spirit. So then in verse 23, when Peter finally met the Gentile men from Cornelius and they told Peter about who Cornelius was and what he'd been told by the angelic messenger from God, Peter invited them in to be his guests. Cornelius welcomed Peter. So first it was Peter who welcomed the men from Cornelius, and then Cornelius welcomes Peter uh, with a much more friendly welcome than Peter gives Cornelius. Verse 23 tells us that Peter went away with the Gentile men on the next day, and some of the brothers were told there in verse 23, that is Christians, at this time Jewish Christians from Joppa accompanied him. So the picture you get is these Gentile guys, uh, two servants and a soldier from Cornelius, are traveling along with now Peter and other Jewish Christians. So Jew-Gentile cohort is is traveling now uh, all back to Cornelius. And this this eager anticipation must have come along with them. When Peter and this entourage arrive in Caesarea, verse 24 tells us that Cornelius was expecting them. 
and had called together his relatives and close friends to hear from this man called Peter, whom the Lord had sent to them. Notice Cornelius' eager expectation. He doesn't know exactly who Peter is. He doesn't know what he's going to say. But whatever it is, it's from the Lord, and I can't wait to hear it. He's expecting. This person is going to come and tell us whatever God has for us. When he sees Peter, when he meets him, Cornelius, he was ready to worship him, we're told in verse 25. Since in Cornelius' mind, Peter is known to God, and he is a messenger from God. So in Cornelius's perspective, from his worldview, this is a divine man. But Peter quickly rejects this worship, uh, not as an insult to Cornelius, but recognizing that uh, only, uh, only God is worthy of worship, certainly not Peter. Uh, this is repeated not only by people in the Bible, but also by uh, at least one time an angel in the Bible rejects worship because worship is reserved only for God. And Peter, of course, tells Cornelius that that's true. After that initial greeting, though, Cornelius takes Peter into his house, maybe the house where he was staying in in Caesarea or maybe his permanent dwelling, I'm not sure. And there Peter found many persons gathered and to hear him in verse 27. So again, we see the eager expectation on the part of Cornelius, so much so that I not only want to hear whatever this guy has to say who's sent from God, but I'm gathering all the people I love in this house and we're going to find out what does God have to say to us. And then Peter says in verse 28, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, of another ethnicity, a Gentile. The social and religious boundaries were drawn clear in numerous ways in society. It was no confusing or strange thing for Gentiles to know that Jews were not allowed to just freely associate with them. So Peter's telling them, hey, you guys know that this is weird, what's happening right now. But he says, continuing on verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Well, now Peter is doing a little interpretive work. It was animals that were lowered down in the sheet. And God says, don't call common what I what I have called clean. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. And Peter's saying, I think what God is telling me is that it's not just animals that used to be unclean that are now clean. But you guys, you Gentiles who once were unclean and off limits to me, God is calling you clean. I think that's what's happening. And verse 29 says, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I'm here breaking what I have been taught my whole life is a is a social law that I'm not to do, that I'm not to overstep. But I'm here because I think God is doing something different. My goodness, these two welcomes here, these two initial encounters, oh, they set the stage for what's going to happen next. And indeed, Peter and Cornelius must have both been really curious to know what in the world is going to happen next. And we would be wondering, too, if we didn't already know the end of the story, if we could feel right now the sort of weight of the Mosaic covenantal laws that Peter felt and that Cornelius must have felt. And if we, if we didn't know already what God has done to bring Gentiles into the new covenant, if we didn't know all that stuff, we would be wondering what's going to happen next. That brings us to point number four, these two explanations of divine revelation. Picking it up in verses 30 to 43. First, Cornelius answers Peter's question. So Peter asked the question, I ask then why you've sent for me. So uh, Peter's 
assessing this whole situation. He knows God is behind all of it. And I, and Peter's asking, I want to know why am I here? Cornelius answers him and he explains all that he had seen and heard from the angelic messenger just four days ago. And now to finalize all this, Cornelius basically just recites all the stuff we had read previously. And then in verse 33, Cornelius and everybody in his, in his, uh, that's close to him were gathered and Cornelius says, in the presence of God, so he knows God's the one who's organized all of this. We know we're before the Lord at this very moment. And we are ready to hear all that you, Peter, have been commanded by the Lord. That's why, that's why we've invited you here, Peter, because we want to know what God says. So here we are. And then Peter answers the implied question, right? The implied question is in verse 33. Cornelius says, we're here and we want to hear from you what God has commanded so what has God commanded you to tell us? That's the implied question. And Peter begins by expressing what his new understanding was of God's unfolding plan of redemption. Peter says in verses 34 and 35, I understand now, God shows no partiality. That is, God shows no partiality in his invitation to participate in the new covenant. But... In every nation, anyone, using the language familiar to the Bible, who fears God and does what is right, is acceptable to him. That is, God shows no partiality with regard to ethnicity. It doesn't matter who your dad is or your granddad or anybody before that. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. Peter's understanding, I understand that in the new covenant, your ethnic descent has no bearing on whether or not you're acceptable before God. The only thing that matters is do you fear him and do what he says? Do you trust in him, serve him, worship him, and seek to live according to his commands? This is what matters. So to put it in, in, uh, in other clearer New Testament terms, in Acts chapter 26, verse 20, repent and turn to God and do deeds or perform deeds in keeping with repentance. This is the way the New Testament talks about responding to the gospel. Or in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe the gospel. Or in Peter's own words recorded in our passage today in verse 43, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter's understanding, this is what matters. What do you do with Jesus? And that's exactly what Peter began to do, was to explain who Jesus is and the good news in the name of Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel to them. So beginning with verse 36, the good news of peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then Peter explains. Verse 38, Jesus of Nazareth was anointed or set apart by God with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all for God was with him. Then verse 39, Peter and the rest of the apostles were witnesses of all that Jesus did, even to the murderous act of Pilate, and the Jewish leaders who had put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree. But, verse 40, God declared Jesus innocent and righteous and also confirmed that his sacrifice was acceptable when he raised Jesus on the third day. And verse 41, the resurrected Jesus appeared to us, Peter said, who had been chosen by God as witnesses. And Peter says he even ate and drank with us after he rose from the dead. Uh, just a, a, a side note here. This is this is one of the uh, places in the New Testament. The New Testament writers 
are not uh, speaking of Jesus as being resurrected from the dead as sort of an, a, an ethereal spiritual resurrection. They're talking about a real bodily resurrection. This is one of the places where that comes out clearly. He's, he's arguing here, we ate and drank with him. He actually got up out of the grave as a physical body. Uh, he is a, a resurrected man in a glorified body, and we got to eat food and drink stuff with him. And that's how we know. Uh, more on that uh, could be said, but that's not really the main thing of what we're looking at today. So verse 42, finally, uh, Peter says at the sort of conclusion of this brief gospel message, he says, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one who's appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, and that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. So let me say just a few things about this really quickly. The promises of the gospel that Peter articulates here are one, that Jesus Christ will judge all unrighteousness, all sin, every injustice, and every wrong. There is coming a day when the prayer of Psalm 94 will be answered in full. If you have your Bible and you want to flip there with me, you might just make a hard left turn to Psalm 94 and look at this with me for just a moment. If you just hear me read it out, you might not believe that I'm actually reading from a prayer of Scripture. Psalm 94 begins like this in verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner, the foreigner, and murder the fatherless children without someone to defend them. And they say, the Lord does not see, God does not perceive. But the psalmist goes on in verse 8. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? This is a prayer and a warning that though there may be a time in which sin seems to go on rampant in the world, God hears every bit of it. He sees every bit of it and he will judge all wickedness everywhere through the person of Jesus Christ. One day, Peter says in the conclusion of his gospel message, that prayer is going to be answered. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. All people everywhere. So one of the gospel promises is that sin will one day be dealt with in full. Now, this is both good news and bad news. It's good news because we don't like to see injustice happen to us. It's bad news because we often are the ones who are doing injustice. So the second promise of the gospel is just as important. And that is that Jesus Christ will save or spare from his vengeance everyone who, verse 43, back in, in Acts chapter 10, who believes in him. That there is forgiveness of sins. That, you don't ha that, that those who are wicked, like me and you, who have committed abominable deeds, 
who have, who have overstepped the clear boundaries that God has given us in our lives, who have disobeyed his commands again and again and again, that there can be an escape from judgment. And not only an escape from judgment, but a full inclusion in the benefits of God's promises of grace in the gospel. So not only the forgiveness of sins, but full welcome into the kingdom of Christ. Total absolution and pardon of guilt. Full credit of perfect righteousness. The merciful and joyous restoration into God's own presence. Gracious adoption into full sonship. That is to be a full inheritor of all that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And many other things. A really enjoyable song that I've, I've come to know more recently puts it like this. Your blood has washed away my sin. The father's wrath completely satisfied. Once your enemy now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. By your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near. Your enemy, you've made your friend. Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace, your mercy and your kindness know no end. This is the gospel that Peter proclaims to Cornelius and those he loves that are gathered around him in that household that day. And he says, these promises that God has been making again and again, that with him, there is the fullness of blessings, that by his side, you have favor and not wrath, that this is open to anyone who will believe in, trust in, give their lives over to the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of your heritage. So what happened when Peter preached that gospel? at this divinely arranged meeting where God was revealing the expansion of the kingdom of Christ to include all sorts of repenting and believing sinners? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's point number five. Two confirmations of conversion take place in verses 44 to 48. Those who heard and believed were converted. We know they were converted because verse 47 tells us they received the Holy Spirit. Something that's available only to those, something that happens only to those who are converted, brought to spiritual life from spiritual death. We also know they were converted because they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ by Peter and those Jewish Christians who had come along with him from Joppa to Caesarea. Each of these is a demonstration of two distinct confirmations. One is a confirmation on God's part. God confirmed their conversion. Another is a confirmation of their conversion on the part of the Christians around them. Let's take each of these in turn. So God confirmed the conversion of all who, verse 44, heard the word by baptizing them or by having the Holy Spirit fall on or come upon, rush upon them. Only God can grant the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that any human can conjure up. Only God can do it. And anyone who has the spirit of God has spiritual life. This is the way spiritual life happens is by God's spirit bringing it about. So anyone who has God's spirit has been, uh, to use the technical term, regeneration, has been renewed, has been brought to spiritual life from spiritual death, brought into fellowship with God and with God's people everywhere. In fact, as we'll see in Acts chapter 15, this is precisely the argument that Peter uses to say, hey, look, God says these people are Christians. We can't deny them. 
because they received the Holy Spirit just as we have. The confirmation, though, of the Christians around them is what I want to think about just for a second with you. So there's a second confirmation of conversion that we see here in this passage. And uh, there are these Gentiles who had received the Holy Spirit, verse 44 and uh, 47. And Peter then asks in verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Why should we baptize these people? According to Peter, they've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. This is the right way for Christians to think about baptism. That baptism is to be given to anyone with a credible profession of faith. These Gentile converts were saying, hey, we believe in this gospel that you're talking about. They heard the word and believed the word. It's the idea that's presented there. And how do we know what's the evidence that they were believing? What's the, what's the credibility of their profession of faith? Because they received the Holy Spirit just like the Jewish Christians before them had. Now, in our own day, we don't wait to listen to someone speak with another tongue or some other language they don't know to find out, are they genuinely converted? Uh, what we've done since the early days of Christianity is look for the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of spiritual life. Is there genuine love for Christ? Is there genuine love for fellow Christians? Is this someone who seeks to live a life in obedience to Christ, to, to give themselves over to Jesus? Do they have a love for God's word? And do they want to submit themselves increasingly to God's word? Now, this is what it means to look for a credible profession of faith. So these Jewish Christians, they're looking at these folks who are appearing to be new converts, and God himself is, is giving credibility to their profession of faith by granting them his Holy Spirit. The evidence they can immediately see is they're speaking in other languages. Now, we too should look for evidence of spiritual life as we look for who are those who, who we should publicly include in the household of faith. Who should we baptize as a new convert in the name of Jesus Christ as a public association with Jesus? Well, that's a bell I like to ring and I could talk a lot more about that one, but let's get on to point number six as we close down our time today. I've talked a lot about all the stuff we see here in Acts chapter 10. What I'd like to do is, Lord willing, give, give us some, some helpful and I hope to be practical takeaways for us today. So what does all this mean for us today? How should we think about this conversion, this expansion of the gospel promises to the people of God going not only to Jews who believe in the Messiah, but also to Gentiles? How should we understand this? Well, I think uh, one takeaway that we might have is that we must believe or trust or cling to the only Jesus who saves. So the same application that Peter is making to Cornelius and these members of his household there in Acts chapter 10 is an application that we can hear uh, of of ourselves today. What is it that brings someone into right covenantal relationship with God? How is it that you or I participate in the promises of the gospel? Forgiveness of sins, adoption into God's family, life everlasting, resurrection from the dead. How does that stuff become ours? Well, it's not by family lineage. It's not by your ethnic descent. It is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him, clinging to Jesus. This is how we participate. We must be honest with ourselves about our sin. We must throw off our pride And we must throw ourselves on the mercy of the only Savior God has given for guilty sinners like us. That's the first takeaway. Another one, a second one, is that we ought to proclaim 
the gospel promiscuously. Now, maybe many of us have heard that word promiscuous in a bad context. Well, what it means is to, to without de- designation, without discrimination, to give wildly. And this is the way we should think about the gospel. We should not wait for only certain individuals who look like us or think like us or talk like us to give them the gospel. People that we think are ready to be converted. We should share the gospel far and wide. For verse 34 tells us, God shows no partiality. God does not show partiality to your boss or those who work under you. God does not show partiality to anybody who has the same skin color as you or a different skin color as you. God shows no partiality to someone who is a bit cantankerous or those who are really nice to you. God shows no partiality. And Jesus Christ makes the forgiveness of sins, verse 43, available to everyone who believes in him. So we should cast the seed of the gospel as wildly and indiscriminately as we possibly can. Because we don't know who it is that might be converted as they hear the message of the gospel and as God's spirit works upon their hearts. We don't decide who's more savable and who isn't. We simply proclaim the gospel. We call sinners to repentance and faith and we let God do the converting. A third takeaway that we might have for us today is that we ought to proclaim the message of the gospel. Now, maybe you're thinking, uh, Mark, you're repeating yourself, but sort of I am and not really. So the third takeaway that I'm pointing to here is that we ought to proclaim not just the gospel as a phrase or a word. We ought not merely say, believe the gospel or accept Jesus or say this prayer with me. Notice the entirety of Peter's presentation of the gospel is facts about Jesus. It's the storyline about who Jesus is, what he did, and how you can participate in the benefits of what Christ has earned. It is an actual message with content. We too should tell people the facts about Jesus. We should tell them the truths about who Jesus is, what he's done, and how sinners can participate in the benefits of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, especially those of us who, start, who, who feel a real burden uh, to see our, our loved ones converted. We, we have lost friends and lost family members. It is not merely you calling out trust in Jesus that makes them understand the gospel and converts their soul. You're in no way going to be able to plead someone into the kingdom of Christ. It is the gospel of God that is the power to change the heart of the sinner. And so when we share the message of the gospel again and again and again, if necessary, we keep planting and watering that seed. And it is God's Holy Spirit that by his own, by his own grace, by his own decision and in his own good time will produce the fruit. And this is the last takeaway that we must trust in the effective power of the Holy Spirit. Throughout this entire passage, there is the great emphasis on the power of on the intentions, and on the effective work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is who sent those Gentile men from Cornelius to Peter, verse 19. And the idea conveyed is that God's Spirit was working in every aspect of this divine encounter between Peter and Cornelius. In verse 38, it was the Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus to do the work of his earthly ministry. And in verse 44, it was the Holy Spirit who fell upon, or came upon, or pressed upon those who heard the word and brought them from spiritual death to life. So brothers and sisters, as we, as we share sometimes 
these phrases, you just need to believe the gospel. You just need to trust in Jesus. I know that sometimes what we're thinking is we just, you know, they, they know the stuff and we just need to plead with them to, to do the right thing. But, but quite frankly, brothers and sisters, there are a lot of folks who think they're Christians that live right, right near us. Uh, possibly some in this room right now who think they know the gospel who don't actually know the gospel because it's taken for granted so often in our culture and in our context. So often people say the phrase, the gospel, and they think they've shared the gospel. But they have not shared the gospel until they tell the story about who Jesus is, what he's done, and how sinners can come into right, right relationship with him. And it is that word of the gospel that God has decided to use to transform sinners' hearts, to bring sinners spiritual life. That is the power of God by which the Holy Spirit works. Just like back in Acts chapter 10, we should understand that God's Holy Spirit is at work all the time. And though he doesn't tell us, I've set up this encounter. He doesn't give that to our ears. But nevertheless, God's Holy Spirit sets up divine appointments all the time in our lives. And what we should do, what we ought to do, is simply share the message of the gospel and rely on God to do that work that only he can. May God help us to be these kind of folks who believe the promises of the gospel, who trust our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only savior for guilty sinners like us. May we be those who share the gospel message as far and wide as we can, that actually share the message of the gospel and rely on God to do that saving work in our own lives and in the lives of those we love. Would you bow with me and let's pray again. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.